Berylum Sports. Hello, good evening, and welcome to your sportscast on 92.6 FM Radio Verulam, where we will be, as always, debating, dissecting, and indeed analysing a sporting topic of your choosing, because, hey, you know it, it's your show. Each and every single bit as much as it is ours. This is Tony Rice alongside the machine, Jason McKenna. And we are here for you until 7pm on this week's Sportscast. And in just a matter of moments, we are going to be putting under the microscope a great topic, great choosing. Once again, this week, we're talking boom or bust. It's such a turbulent time in the moment, but there is, I find, a strange universal pattern. If you look a bit closer, where there is a yin to the yang, a very clever gentleman, I think his name was Isaac Newton, uh, referred to the fact that what goes up must come down. So we're considering boom or bust of sports teams, uh, institutions, organizations over the next year who may well be on the up facing a boom period. That's what we're all getting for. And then a few teams coming down on the other way around, trending down teams which could be perilously close to what we're calling a bust situation as always grateful for this topic of conversation and as always no you are awash with your own ideas and no we've been busy keeping jason busy across social media and we'll get that in a moment but encouraging you still to engage with us so for you who are the sporting teams that you're excited for think could well be anticipating great things in the near future what sporting teams are going the other way, facing bust or in a dangerous scenario, get involved. Tweet us at Verulam Sports. You can email to sports at radioverulam.com where you can, of course, express your opinion in a slightly more thorough fashion. However you choose to do so, make sure you do just that and get involved with us. But now, I teased it. I'm delighted to have my friend, my colleague, the inimitable machine. Jason McKenna with us. Welcome, Jason. And again, I know you've been a busy beaver just keeping up with all the social media interactivity this week. It's, it's amazing the, the kind of insights into sport we're sent by our great listeners. And as always, as always, we just remind people to tweet at Verulam Sport. Very easy to send that one in. You can also get in contact with us by email sport at radioverulam.com. And then if you're fancying any other social media means, just head over to the Facebook of RadioVerulam.com and then it will take you wherever you need to go because we've got a plethora of great old Verulam Sport episodes to listen to as well. I'm sure, Tony, you can open that out because uh, one of the first ones, we have had Olympians on and one of the first ones that we've been told is a boom or bust year. I guess it's hopefully a boom. It's for Team GB at this upcoming 2021 Olympics but also in terms of it I guess going further on from that comment is hopefully it's a boom in terms of the Olympics hopefully we have an Olympics this year which is the sad situation that we're in with Covid but it seems to be that sport has kind of got this under control then moving it on to the Euros and somebody said that Germany, France and a little bit England too for 
all different reasons are boom and bust years. We'll probably go through this in just a second, but I'm just going to read through these real quick. Sebastian Vettel. Now, somebody's mentioned that he needs to prove that it was the car and the team at Ferrari that let him down rather than being lucky with the car and team at Red Bull. That is a very true statement about a boom and bust year for him because the team that he's moving to, Aston Martin should be competitive to an extent. Then Barcelona. What do Barcelona do post-Messi if he leaves? Do they restructure? Do they invest that money? Another great question there from a listener. And then a make-or-break year for many. And this one I'm so, so excited about. And I'm glad somebody's mentioned this. But who wins the heavyweight boxing title? Will we see Tyson Fury be the undisputed, undefeated heavyweight champion, will we see Anthony Joshua? Or, because there is that third, I will say, ridiculous repay between Fury and Wilder, could it be that Fury loses it even before he has that AJ fight? All these sorts of dramas to answer in 2021. But yes, boom or bust year, what do you like from those selection there from our listeners, Tony? Hey, always loving them all and always appreciating your involvement. Remember, as Jason said, tweet us at Verulam Sport, email in sport at radioverulam.com or find us across all other forms of social media. Uh, sounds to me, though, that a few of those uh, listeners were actively engaging to last week's sportscast and that will be available in full podcast form, I think, literally now. Uh, where it's a slightly extended version. The reason I reference that is because uh, I myself referred to, of course, the Olympics and GB's hopes in the calendar year 2021, which was our focus of last week's sportscast. I'm excited for the Olympics. I'm really still fingers crossed and offering up a silent but somewhat fervent prayer that the Olympics will get the all clear. It's up in the air as so much is at this time. But let's just for a moment until we know otherwise remain optimistic. I think that's a really great shout. We profiled it in depth. I'd encourage you to either listen again on the listen back functionality of the Radio Verum uh, website, uh, or you can find the f- podcast in full on the uh, t- uh, podcast tab on the Radio Verum webcast to listen in full to our expose on Team GB. Um, And I'm excited, but there is pressure, like a reference, and I'm not going to go into too much more detail. It's a remarkable run that Team GB have uh, been under. They're the only uh, Olympic uh, nation, or I think it's the IOC Olympic, um, National Olympic Committees, the NOC, um, that's had five consecutive games, going back to Sydney 2000, where Team GB have improved upon their medal haul which is a remarkable run. And also another coup was the fact that they are the only um, National Olympic Committee ever to improve a record hall post hosting their own Olympics. Everybody remembers 2012 and all that. So Team GB has trended up and there are some remarkable talents out there. Uh, I'm excited to uh, see how very young, I think she's only 13-year-old, um, Sky Brown gets on as skateboarding makes its Olympic debut. At the other end of the Olympic spectrum in terms of the age scale, watch out for Ed uh, Clancy, a cyclist. He's already got three Olympic golds. If he can go, uh, well, match that, get another gold in his locker, 
then he will level it up with Sir Ben Ainsley, Sir Mo Farrow and Sir Matthew Pinsent. Anything by that particular trend. And there well, could well be a knighthood for Mr. Ed Clancy in the near future. So much exciting talent, though, going out there. Uh, again, assuming it's on. I cannot wait. I remain optimistic that the Olympics will happen. And I'm optimistic for Team GB. But like I said, Jason, in the preamble, there's this weird uh, universal constant and things even out. You can't keep getting better. You know, I know Sir Alex Ferguson and others uh, would beg to differ with me, but nothing lasts forever. Everything has its time. So it wouldn't surprise me if uh, GB do take a slight step back this Olympic time. But of course, time will tell. Can't wait for that. And also... So enthused for the Euros. Uh, Again, it's at Wembley, isn't it? The final. Could this be an end to 50-plus years of hurt? Football could well be coming home. And as always, I'd love your views on all things England football. Tweet us at Verum Sports. But, Jason, you put that under the microscope brilliantly. would encourage everybody to check out the full extended podcast version of the Year in uh, Sport 2021 that's great. You're going to enjoy that. So, again, awesome shouts there. Vettel, I think, is facing a critical year. It's been a long time since he held aloft the F1 crown. Remember, he's got four titles, but it's going back some time now. So it would be interesting to see how he fares with Aston Martin. Uh, certainly one to watch. I would also say, Jason, I love the shout. Love, love, love the shout of AJ Joshua versus Tyson Fury. Please, let's make that happen this calendar year. It's for all the marbles. It's what all the boxing fans around the world want. And I would say, more importantly, that fight is going to grab the neutral. It's going to grab and entice even those who maybe aren't even into sport at all. I mean, can you imagine the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world unifying the belts, being a Brit? It will be exciting, but so much ahead. Again, as you rightly say, could Wilder uh, be a fly in the ointment? So much ahead. It's an exciting year. So much exciting things to consider. Uh, But I think now it's appropriate, Jason, for you to put under the microscope and profile your first in this boom or bust uh, situation. Yeah, and this one that I want to move the the conversation to, it could be a boom or a bust year for this, well, this this group of individuals. And my focus, as always, it it is going to be Premier League based, just because that's where my, my expertise is. Although, to be fair, I could talk about F1 or boxing as well. But I did really want to bring this up because... I think this needs to be talked about more in the ether because Manchester United are on for either a boom or a bust year, depending on how this season goes. I think that they should be well-placed to to either have a title run, get near to the title, or even go for the first title in seven years. They should be winning a trophy, whether that be Europa League, Champions League or whatever uh, European competition they're still left in. And then going for the FA Cup as well, I I felt a little bit disappointed by their performance in the Carabao Cup. I thought that would have been an easy one 
kind of going into your mentality, which is correct, Tony, of winners win. If they could have got that one under the belt, then that could have settled nerves for the season. But it was another semi-final, four semi-finals in the last year and a third place finish. It's not good enough really for this Manchester United squad with the abilities that they have at you know, their fingertips, basically. And the reason why I say this could be a boom year is because last season, looking at their metrics, and, and really funnily enough, I actually had this discussion a little bit earlier this week, and a lot of Man United fans were perplexed at the fact that they had an elite defence last season. And I, I don't say that lightly. I say that with a lot of data to back that up. They were only just, you know, a hair's breadth in terms of quality behind Liverpool and Man City last season. What happened was their attack overperformed, but still seriously was nowhere near the performance of Liverpool and Manchester City. But after their result on Tuesday, they're now three points ahead in the league. And I don't think this is an accident. You know, the data from this season shows that Man United are well in the mix. Seasons gone by, Man United left behind in terms of quality of attack and defence. But looking at their attacking data this year, Man United are top three for many of the metrics. And, you know, they're very, very blessed with having the player with the most expected goal involvements with Bruno Fernandes. He is ridiculously high quality, uh, 55 shots, but so many uh, involvements in terms of assists and and the quality of that man has really boosted and brought on the Man United attack where they were really lacking in years gone by. And what's interesting to me as well is if you compare it to the team data of somebody like Man City or Liverpool, they're so, so close. And in many instances, they're actually better than Liverpool or Man City. And what I would say as well is where Man City have been lacking this season is an out-and-out goal scorer. And that's why Man City have scored 25 goals and Man United have 34. Liverpool have 37. The absence of Aguero, the absence of Jesus, yes, Man City are doing what they do always, creating lots of goal-scoring chances, but they've not got somebody to put them away or even exceed it a little bit, which elite teams do. Now, the flip side... And quite ironically, I was talking, as I said earlier in the week, about Man United's defence being so, so good last season. This year, the data's not as good. But what I found interesting as well is Liverpool's data is not good at the back. They're letting far too many big chances in. Man City have been strong defensively, but as I said, they're, mm-hmm. they're not as free-scoring as before. They're not seeing off people. So... In, in genuineness, uh, you know, I'm genuinely saying that this is probably the first time in many, many seasons that Manchester United can actually expect to compete with the big boys. This is their first chance since 2013. I think if they were to buy an elite defender to partner Harry Maguire, maybe a left-footed centre-back, that would really work well in their system. They could be pushing for their first title in seven years. Uh, what do you think about that one, Tony? And, and what do you think about my criticism as well? If they don't do anything this year, they really have to look back on themselves and, and class this as a failure. They're, they're, they're so close on the cusp of success. Yeah, listen, Jason, there's always uh, great points, incredibly well made. Um, you've circled and uh, highlighted Fernandez. 
He is key with 18 goals, 13 assists um, since he came to the Premier League. That's 31 Premier League goal contributions. It actually saw him break Frank Lampard's calendar record for a midfielder of 29. And that record itself has lasted over a decade, set way back in 2009. The guy's critical. Of course, no team is a one-man team. Manchester United are much improved. You're dead right to draw attention to the fact that they top the table and, of course, are hunting that first title uh, in the post-Sir Alex Ferguson era. But I like the fact that you frame this with a boom or bust because it's such a fickle world, isn't it? The world of football, the world of the Premier League and sport generally. But before Christmas, let's go back maybe seven, eight weeks, perhaps just a touch further. The vultures were beginning to circle over Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. They were in a mediocre position. They weren't in this flush run of form. And lots of people were putting deep, deep questions on Solskjaer's ability to generate the best out of the team. There were question marks again as to does he know his best 11? There will remain question marks over another international name, a galactic superstar in Pogba, and how he fits into the equation. For me, I would suggest that Pogba will have to play a big role if United are to uh, make this crucial run to the top. And again, let's give them their credit. They are top of the table for the first time in a long time. But again, I have to come back to that big but. It's a huge if. As you identified, Jason, again, crashing out of the um, Carabao Cup at the semi-final stage. Um, they're out of the Champions League, although they get another European bite of the cherry in the Europa League. Have this United side got many players in their team? Obviously, Pogba's held aloft World Cups, for goodness sake. But how many of them have come from a culture of winning? It's, it's not many, really. And obviously, Solskjaer came from that um, class of 99, was instrumental in uh, that dramatic Champions League victory, which is enshrined in Manchester United and indeed English footballing folklore. Uh, the guy has pedigree on the pitch and is great at what he does. However, I'm yet to be sold on Solskjaer as a tactical guru. I'm not convinced, although they are showing consistency, that he is absolutely nailed down his best 11. I think there are holes in this Manchester United side. Jason, I think the X factor this season is the uh, one that's facing everybody, isn't it? And that's the CV19 factor. There's going to be games thick and fast. They keep flying in such a hectic schedule. There's going to be injuries. What happens to this United side if Fernandez picks up an injury? I recognise, as I've already stated, this is not a one-man team, but his influence cannot be debated. So for me, there are massive question marks still remaining over Manchester United. And the fact that they are top of the league, I'll give them their dues. I will not take that away from them. I also will not deny that the if I was a Manchester United fan at this time, that I'm feeling enthusiastic. I'm loving the fact that we're on this great run of form. I'm believing. And I think that's great. Am I believing? I don't know. I don't think that they're a championship winning side. 
you know, I mean, this is on record. It's out there. I'm sure many people will be loving to tweet in at Verulam Sport. I know there's a whole heap of Man United fans there eager to uh, post your views. Bring them on. I'd love to hear from you. Honestly, I respect where you are. Truly, I do. I'm not convinced right now that you are title uh, winners. You might be pushing all the way. I, I, you know, I can see that. Uh, it's exciting times, though, like I say, for Manchester United. But, Jason, to answer your question, I think it's a brilliant way that you put that on the um, seesaw boom bust. Because, again, given all the potential, given all the great facts you've expre- expressed, given the uh, contender for Premier League player of the season, certainly uh, statistically the Premier League player of the calendar year, uh, the Portuguese star Fernandes, then this is exciting, booming times for United but it could go bust. Remember, six, seven, eight weeks ago, Solskjaer under pressure, huge question marks. Right now, it's peaches and cream. Well, peaches can go sour. That's all I'm saying. Just quickly, your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think the expectations this season, they should be pushing for something. They've spent so much money now. They've got a really good core to that team. And like I said, I don't think that they will win the league. I think it's it is between the two of Liverpool and Manchester City. But they've set themselves up in a position now where it's more you know, that they are at the top of the table. It's the hey, others Jason, to take. Just quickly, don't rule out the special one. Are you still there <laughs> or thereabouts? Uh looking at Tottenham, I don't uh, I don't think that they're close. I mean that the fact now that they are well off the pace in terms of of their uh, ability there. You know, Man United... When they're game in hand, they're just four points off in this crazy, crazy year. Look, I had this conversation um, with the Cliff Crown, uh, Radlett's own Cliff Crown, the Brentford chairman, ahead of their semi-final defeat to Spurs. And, um, you know, I wasn't impressed with Spurs over the festive period, and everybody knows how much of a fan I am of the special one. Um, But, again, unlike United, he wins through... Um, to um, another final. And Jason, again, it's about boom and bust. We'll focus it back on to um, your appraisal of Manchester United. But I just want to say, for my money, winners win. And if Spurs can claim that first title of the year, or first trophy of the year, the Carabao Cup in April, that could well keep them going. I don't think they've got enough beyond Song and Kane. Mind you, that's not a bad uh, couple to have going strong. They're my final thoughts on the special one. Just simply wanted to get it in there. Don't rule Tottenham out, though. I know you've got views on them. Tweet them at Verum Sport. Love to hear from you. Yeah, I mean, people will come back and say, oh, you know, you're, you're an Arsenal fan, Jason. You, you're a bias against them. But purely at this, I've waxed lyrical there about certain aspects of Manchester United. It hurts me to say it. Uh, the, the reason why I'm against Tottenham is just, you know, purely from a data perspective, their attack is not very good, apart from, as you said there, Kane and Son are buoyant, you know, buoyant at the moment. But if they're having an off period, which they have done over the festive period, yep. it makes me question them. And their defence is pretty solid, but they're just not scoring enough to see teams out. Now, on to the topic of Manchester United. Yeah, I think the the fans will rightly almost have the daggers out at the end of the season if they don't have a bit of silverware. I think... Any bit of silverware, whether it be Europa League, FA Cup or Premier League, which I I highly doubt it will be the Premier League, but they are top at the moment, so you have to consider them in that conversation. 
if they haven't got any bit of silverware, then I would really kind of reconsider Solskjaer's position. But at the moment, they're looking strong. They're coming into a good run of form. And what happened at the start of the season was the team were obviously not very fit. They hadn't had uh, a good pre-season period purely because of their extended run in the Europa League. So now we're kind of coming to the Man United how they should be. And this is something that I kind of said on other discussions in, in other football forums. And it's that Man United have that ability to be an elite side. They will come to it. It's just when. And they're kind of hitting it at the right time. You want to be hitting the new year. They're entering the new year, top of the table. And that's going to really you know, boost the psychology of the team. I think Liverpool are in a difficult place in terms of the fact that they seem to be losing people left, right and centre almost every week now with an injury. And that's partly due to their play style, um, but also it's partly down to bad luck. And I think City, until Aguero's fully fit or Jesus, they're going to struggle with the goals still. And that's that's put Man United in a prime position at the moment. And as I said, it's it's theirs at the moment. The others have to now come and grab that. They have to drop points. I think they will. And I think a huge test is going to be the weekend game um, this weekend, obviously, against Liverpool. But we'll see. And I think the the questions will be right to be asked of Manchester United and of Solskjaer if they don't win anything. And they really need to change the manager if it's not because he doesn't have that winning mentality that the likes of Jose, your man Mourinho, and I love him as well. Don't get me wrong. I, I love Mourinho. I think he's brilliant. But Pep, Mourinho... When Wenger was there, you could kind of trust, whereas Solskjaer mm. hasn't had that experience of seeing out games. And if he doesn't do it this year, I don't think he's got it in him at all, Tony. Yeah, we shall see. Always time will tell. And as always, I know you've got your views. Who will win the Premier League? Man United are primed. They're set there for a boom. But could it all go bust? Tweeters at Verulam Sport. Uh, Pep... Looks like he's got the pep back in his step. Will it be his Man City uh, reclaiming the Premier League title? But of course, it is Liverpool's title until somebody says otherwise. Klopp's men uh, maybe not showing their finest form from last season, but it's a peculiar year. But they're still set fair. Lots of teams will be looking at Liverpool with envy. Will they be building a dynasty? Tweet us at Verum Sport. Email in sport at radioverum.com. Love to hear your views on all things Premier League. Talking Premier League, and I know there's going to be more where that came from a bit later, probably in the extended podcast version of this show. Each and every single week, we engage in the Verum Sport Premier League Predictions League, and we're encouraging you, you punditry genius, you, to get involved and show us that you're better than us, that your football knowledge trumps our own. Really, really rather simple. You get three points. For each and every correct, accurate scoreline prediction in any given Premier League fixture. You get one point if you get the correct result, but perhaps out by a goal or two in the actual score it's, uh, scoreline itself. And nothing in our game if you get the result wrong. But of course, that doesn't apply to you, does it? Of course it doesn't. I know. I know how good you are. I can see a joyous face as you reel off yet another correct prediction. Well, I'll tell you what, prove it to us. I want to hear from you. Throughout the Premier League season, you can tweet at Verland Sport. Email in 
sports at radiofrontland.com with your Premier League predictions and see if you can indeed improve upon our own here on the uh, Sportcast Federal Sports Premier League Predictions League. And just to give a quick rundown, again, so many fixtures flying in. So it will be all changed, I am sure, over the coming weeks. But as it stands, new recruit Neil Stock is still in uh, fourth place, but he's gaining ground each week, currently up to 96 points. Hey, talking boom or bust, really hoping the Saints season will not be curtailed because they are unbeaten in the Vanarama National League South. And they are just two points off the top with two games in hand to hear from them all season long. Their home games from Clarence Park. Hit the red button, listen live on the Radio Verum website, and you'll hear the dulcet tones of our very own Double G, Graham Griffin. He's currently in third place on 101 points. There's a tie for second with myself and my colleague, the machine, Jason McKenna. Here with you tonight till 7 p.m. We have both bagged 105 points, which means still out in front, but with all to play for. The ace man, Matthew Turvey, has 111 points so far. So much to play for, but I know you can do better. Tweet us at Verulam Sport, email in sports at radioverulam.com. Always keen to hear from you with your Premier League predictions. But moving on, the moving sports. Um, I'm going to end or focus in this big sports cast with my bust. My natural tendency is always to be positive, uh, but I feel as though we've had a lovely kind of on the cusp one there with Manchester United. I'm going to kick off uh, this, um, my side of things, so to speak, with a bust. And then it, well, my boom will be included in our fully extended version, podcast version of this week's sportscast make sure you check out that it'll be available uh a week yesterday next friday uh, anyway i'm going bust and it, it saddens me to say this one and i kind of really rather hope this doesn't prove to be the case but i've gone for gloucester rugby club and i know if you're listening friend of the show um a rugby world cup winner former master chef championne phil vickery very much a gloucester man I tell you what so much so he was actually given the keys to that very city. He was a just a legend over at King's Home in Gloucester. He's not going to be very pleased to hear this. But I'm sure being an honest, salt-of-the-earth gentleman as he is, he'll understand why I put them as a bust. They are currently rock bottom of the Gallagher Premier League. Uh, they are 12th and bottom with just six points from their opening six fixtures. One win, five losses, and just two bonus points that they've picked up. They're competing in the Heineken Champions Cup, which was an extended version, but of course that has been suspended, which means that there is no action in the Gallagher Premiership uh, until uh, back end of January now, almost a fortnight off. Um, We'll see how that's helps or perhaps hinders Gloucester. But goodness knows they need to do a lot of soul searching to the men in cherry and white. Uh, I mean, look, we talk about culture of success all the time, don't we, Jason? And how that starts at the top. And discipline seems to be one of the vital components or ingredients in any successful sporting club. And 
for me, there was an incident, um, I think it was back on Boxing Day, where a 30-man brawl was in, ensued when ex-England man, uh, Gloucester's Billy Twelve Trees, got 22 caps for England. Um, they, were, they were narrowly lost again. It's always that weird thing, isn't it? As I say all the time, win is win. They were narrowly turned over. Let's say I've got almost a last-minute try. Now, 12 trees, to at least give him some dues, was trying to get the ball back to speed things up. They needed to get a quick score, otherwise we're facing yet another defeat, which they went down to defeat against Sale in this game. But in doing that, literally, bearing in mind that this is an ex-England international uh, you're, if you've never seen him, uh, just that alone will give you an idea that this is not exactly a runt of a human being. Basically, he put over a water boy, and that's uh, spiraled, escalated into quite ugly scenes. Never nice to see. Almost a 30 man brawl took place. Um, we don't yet know the fallout from that, no doubt there will be. And I don't mean to circle out 12 trees, um, issues and bottom places and bad run of forms are, again, usually endemic and usually cultural. However, whilst I guess his intentions were for the best, he wanted to get that ball back, he needed to get a quick uh, bit of action, get Gloucester back into the game. You simply don't put your hands on a ball boy. Um, you know, it's just one of those things. You simply do not. So, like I say, for me, huge pressure under Gloucester. Now, I mentioned a culture of success, and always that stems from the top. Um, Gloucester last season finished seventh, kind of mediocre, mid-table, but it did give them a chance to qualify for the suspended Heineken uh, Champions Cup, which they achieved. And they had some fantastic coaches. Johan Ackerman, a South African international, David Humphreys, many, many caps for Ireland. Now, they've got a very exciting new coaching structure. George Scrivington... Uh, excellent and Irishman, excellent Tigers as well. He's got international experience at the coaching level, coached at Samoa. Uh, I'm excited to see ex uh, England international, indeed, World Cup winner alongside the aforementioned Phil Vickery. Trevor Woodman is also involved in their coaching infrastructure. And they've got five times cap Alex King looking after their attacking play. So, they do have talent and very genuine uh, rugby men in that coaching infrastructure. So that, for me, is a cause for optimism for the Cherry and Whites. But they do need to move things around. I don't know the details here, but I'm sure Alex King, their attacking coach, is still behind the scenes, a little bit vexed, maybe somewhat frustrated that they are without one of the most unique attacking gifts that English rugby has ever produced, Danny Cipriani, who uh, starred for the Cherries last season. Uh, he's such a rare talent, um, a maverick in every sense of the word. And England, as we discussed, I find, as a general rule, hasn't ever found a way to manage and truly maximise skill sets of any maverick. You know, we've all spoken about Gaza. He is almost Gaza-esque in his mentality, in his imagination, and just his capacity to, on the field, conjure something, some magic out of nothing. And he's still looking for a club. He was at Gloucester, being past tense. So I don't know the details. It will be fascinating to discover 
what, if anything, happened behind the scenes for him to want to shift on and move, because he did seem quite settled at Gloucester. But that's a big loss. So Alex King, this whole new coaching infrastructure, have to almost go back to the, uh, to the drawing board with where they're at and what their plans are. And it's a big ask. It's a tough ask. I think their one saving grace uh, is that there is talk, just talk at this moment, that there may well be no relegation in this year's Gallagher Premiership because of the scenario that we're facing. <laughs> Excuse me there. That's a long conversation for another time, uh, but it could well perhaps be the saving grace for Gloucester. But as it stands at this very time, for the reasons I've explained, for me, they're a team, unfortunately, on the cusp of bust. And if they were to go down, this wonderful story team, again, World Cup winner um, Trevor uh, Woodman at the helm there, a coach. We've referenced ex-World Cup winner uh, Phil Vickery, one of their legends. So many legends have come through the Gloucester team over the years. It will be a shame. But if there is relegation, if that does prove to be Gloucester getting relegated, lots of ifs there. So, you know, let's not uh, be too uh, far-reaching. But in that scenario, I would be concerned for Gloucester because whilst you would back them to get back, um, it could be a slippery slope. We've experienced that in uh, football world many a time. So watch this space. Watch out for Gloucester. They're a proud rugby institution. They do have great players. They do have great coaches. So watch them. Let's see if they can turn the corner. But for the moment, I'm seeing them as a bust. Your thoughts, Jason? Yeah, I've got uh, a couple of thoughts, actually, and a couple of questions for you. Uh, and the first question is, what can save the team? What do they need to do differently? What have they been doing wrong now? Is it purely down to tactics or is it a little bit of luck, a little bit of just unfortunate situations, especially with the loss of Cipriani? It's a great question. And I'll tell you something which gives me cause for optimism for Gloucester, having pitched them as a bust. Um, they've, again, played six, um, won only uh, one, and five defeats. Now, that victory was a 40 to 24 points victory against Wasps, who were uh, beaten finalists last year. So that gives you an idea of just how good this Wasps outfit are. Um, they've only picked up two bonus points, Jason, so far in the league. Again, only six points from their six games. One of those bonus points was an incredibly, uh, well, narrow defeat to Exeter Chiefs, who are champions. So their performances at that top level look really quite strong. And they've lost lots of games narrowly. Again, going back to that 12 tr uh, trees incident, that was against Sale. I think they only lost that game by three points. So... There is cause for optimism. I watched them play um, over the Christmas period against Newcastle and they showed great promise. They're in games, but they've just got that losing habit as opposed to that winning one. Um, they're only actually three points off um, Worcester in, um, in 11th. So they're not a million miles away. 
Uh, I pitched them as a bus because of where they are. That 12 Trees incident, which again is a reflection for me, a mirror of a team not in disarray, but in desperation and certainly ill-discipline. And that ain't never a recipe for success. So I am concerned for Gloucester, but if I'm a Gloucester fan, I can pick out positives as I've done. And I would still have faith in that coaching uh, stru uh, structure. But again, it is a relatively new coaching structure. So they're still getting to know one another and looking for the magic formula. Tell you one thing that that coaching team have done, and I think this is important. I think they could get the benefits from this down the road. Um, they've actually kind of opened up their dressing rooms so that there isn't like a first team, a second team, uh, kind of women's team. They've opened up also their coaching um, rooms. So there's no divide, no dividing walls between Alex King as an attacking coach, Trevor Woodman coaching the forwards. They're therefore looking literally to embrace a culture of openness. Now, if that's channeled positively, then that could be really, really good. I mean, again, I hope that proves to be the case. However, if there are uh, questions, if the negative run continues, then that open forum could well be, uh, unfortunately, counterproductive. We will see. But I do like the attitude. and I do kind of like the underlying philosophy behind that, uh, that openness that they've done uh, through removing all barriers. So we'll, we'll see, Jason. There's causes for optimism, but reasons why I consider them a bust at this moment. Continuing the conversation there, you, you mentioned that the team has talent. You, you mentioned, obviously, the loss of Cipriani, but I want to talk about maybe their acquisitions. Could they bring in talent to save them? Does the team have a good history of quality transfers that could actually make the difference in this season? Yeah, look, again, they've recruited from afar. They've got strong influences across South Africa. And, you know, again, the, the, there's a reason why they uh, fought their way into this year's suspended Heineken Cups, uh, Champions uh, Cup, which is, you know, the elite of European rugby, uh, which has been extended, but currently on suspension. So they will, I'm sure, need to recruit. But it's now impossible for anybody to recruit. Uh, we much documented the salary crap uh, in, um, shenanigans of Saracens from last season. And quite rightly, this has now become much more stringently applied and also reduced. So already people know where their squad is, know the value of their squads. And there isn't like in football, uh, a transfer window. It's now kind of once you've capped out and achieved that salary cap, then you pretty much got to work with that. So it's going to be difficult for them to kind of make moves. It will require lots of different other moves. So they simply have to work with what they have and see where that takes them. And Jason, you know, we talk about it all the time, don't we? Momentum is such a crazy thing in life and in sports. A couple of wins, and again, they're only three points off um, the team just above them at the moment, Worcester Warriors. And they could, again, really fight their way up. The Gallagher Premiership is always very tight, always very competitive. And as a reference, Gloucester's record against the two current big boys in defending champs, Exeter, and indeed a victory over beaten finalists last year, Wasps, does show us that this is a team with talent, with potential, 
But as I say, they're rock bottom for a reason at the moment. Now, the final question that I wanted to actually ask, and you, uh, I'm bringing it on another D, but you've mentioned there that there might be no relegations this season. And we've talked about them there. The salary situation caused Saracens to go down. Now, I'm assuming that Saracens are very powerful in the league below. But if there's no relegations, that means no promotions. And surely, if there's no promotions, that must be a huge, huge bust of a year for Saracens, who are probably thinking, it's not too bad. We're going to have a straight comeback into the, the Premiership. We're going to be in the top division next season. If it's two seasons out, that's a very vastly different story. And I don't know how many players would want to carry on at the club for the season below. Can, just before we move on, can you quickly kind of give us an insight into that? Could this be, in fact, be a bust year for Gloucester and also Saris? Jason is such a good point. Firstly, I don't want to sit on the fence on this, but I do want to be very, very clear. This is not uh, a law or a rules changing. There's no decisions yet being made. It has been rumbling around. There's been talk of ring fencing the top level of rugby for a long time, almost making it a la the Super League in Rugby League. And there are uh, veracity behind that thought process. But that is a terribly long conversation. At this stage, we are still working with the current information, and that is that there will be uh, relegation and indeed promotion. Um, but it, there are whispers, and there's that old one about fire and smoke. So it wouldn't surprise me if that does come to pass. Assuming that, then that will be disastrous for Saracens. As you rightly say, Saracens players have shown such commitment to Saracens. Um, I know Alex Good has gone off to Japan, a few others, but many of the players have just basically been loaned out for a season. Many of the players have chosen to actually stay with Saracens. They're actually looking, again, it's just rumour stage at the moment, to be organising fixtures against big Super 14 teams, South African teams, which would be almost equivalent to Premiership Rugby, um, just in that kind of period when touring teams come over. Um, so that could be exciting for Saracens. And again, in a scenario where there's no relegation, I'd be shocked if anything other than the men in black bouncing straight back into the Gallagher Premiership. And then they retain the players that they retained. They bring back a few lone players and you mark your money. And Mark McCall's men with a chip on the shoulder will be a force to be reckoned with. But to answer your question, Jason, if this at the moment, just hypothetical scenario comes to pass and there is no relegation in the Gallagher Premiership. It's literally ring-fenced, perhaps saving Gloucester's bacon, perhaps saving somebody else's bacon. But Jason, I love your Manchester United uh, piece. The reason being because it was beautiful on that cusp. Teetering could go one or either way. Fantastic. But now, up next, what have you got? Is it a firm boom or a very clear bust? Again, this could be a boom or bust season, but it's very much teetering on the bust. I don't think there'll be a boom element. But I say that there could be a boom in the sense that just by staying up, Sheffield United would be doing a fantastic job. But it's looking bust. It's looking bust from comparison to last season. And frankly, it's, 
the light at the end of the tunnel was not there. The, I can't see any way out of this situation. They did pick up points against the Magpies of Manchester United, uh, Man- Newcastle United this week, and that you know might be a buoyant. It, it might give mm-hmm. them a little bit something to float on, but it's kind of being in a shipwreck, and you've just got a little lilo out there, but you're stranded in the middle of the ocean. And, and I can't see their money to shore at all. I think they're stuck out there. Why this is probably going to be... probably at the worst time in Premier League history. They do have a fairly wealthy backer, and I'm not sure what kind of backing he does give financially to the club, but previously it's basically been the club that Chris Wilder has taken and remoulded and made in his own image. He's done such an amazing job, and I hope they stick with him as well because I don't think these problems are actually of his making, apart from a little bit that I'm going to get on in a second. But at the moment, the problem was when Sheffield United came up, and the problem still persists, that the squad is not great. Looking especially at their forward line, and this is reflected in the data as well, they need some serious spending up there. They need to solve the problems. The team are good kind of defensively, or have been historically, and then that's kind of gone you know, to the back burner this season because they lost quite a few people for injury, the biggest of which was Jack O'Connell. But then we can't overestimate the value of the loss of um, Dean Henderson from Manchester United. Mm-hmm. Again, somebody that I mentioned that Man United should be factoring into their first team. That's how good he was. He is an amazing young English goalkeeper. And frankly, if he was in the Man United starting lineup, he'd be replacing Pickford. And I think the England, you know, uh, Lions would have finally somebody to replace Seaman. But I digress. That's a discussion for another day. But in terms of Sheffield United, the club were actually one of the biggest spenders last summer. 56 million spent. Not a lot of clubs spent a lot of money for obvious reasons. But actually, Sheffield United were one of the biggest ones. And with that spending, there's no noticeable improvement. A little bit earlier, they spent fairly big on Burge as a midfielder. And what I would say is actually their midfield before wasn't a big problem, but maybe they were kind of looking at the the deep data, the numbers and thinking, we're going to get Burge in. He's a good one for the future. I wouldn't say he's revolutionised the side. Then this summer, they um, they, they bought in Brewster, from Liverpool, which confused me a lot, especially the amount that they paid for him. Now, when I when I was saying about uh, Sheffield United and their problems going forward, I was expecting them to maybe get, I don't know, a forward who's a bit of a journeyman, but a good ability to, to put the ball in the back of the net. I was thinking somebody like Callum Wilson could have done amazing bits for them. But there's also players in the lower leagues Ollie Watkins, that could have been a great signing. You know, somebody there who's fairly young. If it doesn't work, they've got some high resale potential and they played in the Premier League. So even there, that would have been a no kind of brainer loss situation. Somebody with the ability to to put the ball in the back of the net. But 
they plumbed for Rian Brewster. And the weird thing is, is he's only played 633 minutes this season. He's been a bit part player. You'd be expecting for Sheffield United to fork out close to 30 million Mm -hmm. for a player, a record signing at that, that he'd be starting week in, week out. And the fact that he can't even make it into the team shows you it was either the wrong signing, there's an attitude problem or a fitness problem. And if it's, if it's the fitness problem, I understand COVID-19. If it's an attitude problem, they should have probably seen that before they welcomed him into the club. And if it's an ability problem, why did they sign him? Mm. You know, the, the, this is crazy stuff. And then Aaron Ramsdale, he's a fairly good goalkeeper. But again, they spent big because he's English, because he was former Premier League. I think they could have gone for somebody of higher quality for cheaper value. They could have gone abroad. They could have gone down to a lower league. They could have got somebody with much better metrics. There wasn't anything standing out to me saying that Anne Ramsdale is a lot better than anybody else. So for me, I think that they spent very poorly, but they spent big on poor acquisitions. And that leads me back to my first point, is they spent big. They've given these players quite lengthy contracts. So they're going to be stuck with Ramsdale. They're going to be stuck with Brewster if they do get relegated. And that's going to be a big problem for the club that has run pretty on a, a, a shoestring. They're also going to lose soon. Billy Sharp, McGoldrick, and a few of the other aging players in their squad that they really needed to improve on with acquisition. So for me, it's a sad story because I love the, the story, the narrative that was last year. Chris Wilder, everybody was kind of waxing lyrical about him. The amazing work that he'd done, bringing that team from League One into the Premier League. It, it was no mean feat. It was probably a miracle in, in many aspects. In the modern day of football, with the money involved, getting a team like Sheffield United into the Premier League. And so it would be sad to see that go. But again, as I mentioned there, in terms of data, they're bottom for a lot of things. And I mentioned as well, they need a goal scorer because the team are creating some chances. When you look at the expected goals data, you look at the shots kind of in the inside the box data, Sheffield United aren't a relegation side in attack, They're, but they've only put nine goals away. They're half the expected goals. Their goal scorers just aren't good enough. The other thing uh, that, that worries me as well is it's not from a lack of trying. I looked up the pressing data for the Blades, and they're actually one of the sides with the least declines mm. in terms of pushing data, running, all those kind of numbers. So it's not a fitness thing. It's not a lack of trying. It's just, it seems very unlucky for the Sheffield United side. Injuries have come at the wrong time a lack of goal-scoring ability or putting the chances away that would have happened last season. It's looking very, very sad. I'm just hoping, I'm hoping that the result against Newcastle is ushering in almost a change, a turnabout ship. But Tony, do you agree with me that it's looking like nails in the coffin kind of job now? Is it too little, too late? Well, these are the facts. This is the worst start in Premier League history. Uh, Never something you want to be boasting about. Only three teams in the Premier League era have been bottom at Christmas and survived. West Brom in 04, Sunderland back in 2013 and Leicester City in 2014. 
So the weight of history is against them. Um, Jason, it's not looking good for uh, Chris Wilder's men. And as you rightly say, a victory over Newcastle could be crucial. Uh, lifts them up to five points. Uh, but there's still a big gap uh, that they're having to overhaul, even at this still you know, midpoint in the season. Plenty of action ahead. We all know that. Um, there's always, where there's life, there's hope, I suppose. I don't think at this stage, though, we can call it luck. Usually by Christmas time, there is some kind of a pattern uh, projecting and coming to play. I think this is a surreal season, though. And with that being said, the chips are still up in the air. A good result for them. I think that was a critical result for them against Newcastle. As to whether it proves to be critical in, uh, in being a bit of a, um, an injection of hope, we'll see. And as many fans will no doubt hope. But I just think they've given themselves such a mountain to climb. Now, whilst I don't believe in luck, particularly now at this you know, midpoint in the campaign, you did use that word unlucky. And I think the critical thing, the key thing, was yet last season's successes was really kind of predicated on such a strong defence. Um, they did show a little bit of a paucity in front of goal. And that is going to be critical. If they cannot solve that problem, it is forget about it, Ville. They will be a, a championship team next season. I think almost certainly they will be. That all being said, one thing that struck me, going back a few weeks now, so it was after 14 games, they'd only actually lost three games. So uh, that would be 11 games in total. Meant that they'd only gone down by one goal or less. So really in contention. Now, two things. Again, as we've said earlier, as we've always banged the drum for, when you're in a great run of form, you, you convert those kind of 1-0 defeats into a one-all at the last second somehow. And when you're going the other way, the other thing happens as Sheffield United are living experience improving, case in point, this very season. But it just demonstrates that what exactly statistically in terms of their energy and the commitment onto the pitch that they're putting in uh, regarding the uh, pressing efforts you explained. Um, but Huff and Puff does not blow a house down and they need to find that big bad wolf to get the goals. Otherwise, they're doomed. I don't think they've got it in their locker at the moment. But again, Jason, the fact that they are in contention in so many games... If you're a Blades fan, now on the back of a Newcastle win in front of the home faithful, or last not in front of the home faithful, also an FA Cup win, meaning two straight ga uh, games picking up wins. Is there enough there? Is there something there to cling to and say, there is indeed at least some slither of light at the end of this dark, dark tunnel they've had so far this campaign? The thing for me is they've lost that amazing defence that they had last season. They've only had one clean sheet so far. They've got the second, sorry, they've got the third highest expected goals conceded. I know you're not a big fan, but we'll put that to the side for the moment. The side are just letting in so many big chances. 41, the third highest so far this season. Goal attempts in the box, third highest so far this season. You're looking at all these bits of data and then you look at last season, and they were so much better than this. They, they did overperform vastly last season 
but that was due to a fantastic goalkeeper in Henderson. But even with that, they still managed their defence so, so well. They, they looked solid. They were a little bit scary even to play against. Now they've kind of lost that. And looking at their big chances conceded in all of last season, they're about 10th. Their XG conceded was actually in the top half of the table. I think they were ninth there. You look at that sort of stuff and they were they were making it hard to play against them. And one one thing, one fascinating foible, uh, along with the the overlapping centre backs of um of Sheffield United has been their historical ability of just being able to work in fine margins. They allow teams very few chances of low quality, and then they used to only shoot very little kind of shots, but of high quality. That was their kind of weird foible, that they worked in small margins, but of really high quality. And they've lost that at both ends of the pitch, which is so sad once again. They've lost that almost niche ability to see out games, to to work hard, because they just knew how to, to manage game management. So that ability at the back has, has almost totally vanished because they're so far down at the bottom. And the fact that they've always been kind of not able to create a lot of chances in front of goal has gone hand in hand with this demise. So yes, they're still working hard, but the problem really needs to look at something that they either need to sign a defender to replace Jack O'Connell or give him a bit of competition when he comes back or they need to rework the tactics because it's just not working and they need to regain that ability because quite often the story is, isn't it, Tony? And um, it's the best defences in the league will not go down. If you've got a really solid defence, yes, it's quite boring. I mean, this, this comes out of the playbook of the man that I waxed lyrical about a few weeks ago, Sam Allardyce. He sometimes looks boring. He sees out games, but he gets, he doesn't allow a lot of goals conceded. And that's what keeps his teams up. They need to basically go back to basics, work on what they were really, really good at before. And then maybe they can change their tactics up top. They can get that striker acquisition. But for now, Tony, there's no way out of this. Their, their data is so, so poor. And it's not even just a start of the season thing with poor um, fitness. It's definitely because of the absence of those in the squad, in the team. But there's just a a lack of tactical ability to see out the games like they used to. Well, that's a key point, Jason, because I think you made a really good point uh, about Chris Wilder and the need to keep the faith in him. I'd never liked the short-termism that seems to be so prevalent in this day and age. But I do have to advocate the, the devil and ask this question. Given that, th- okay, there have been a few differences in injury-wise, uh, but again, there is that same level of energy and commitment. But you've just mentioned there that strategically they seem to be bereft of ideas. What does Chris Wilder need to do to at least show that he's got this team fighting and on a good run because even if they don't survive I truly do hope Sheffield United are not going to be terribly short-termist but the general trend in football is exactly that and it wouldn't surprise me if the head of the blades gets the chop so the question is this what has Chris Wilder done 
less than strong this season? And what are you hoping to see him do, change and adapt to, to at least demonstrate that he has that ability to adapt, particularly when that back is firmly against the wall? Yes, it's a great question, Tony. And I think the main problem has been, I know you didn't like it, but I do think he has been hugely unlucky with the injuries that he's got. But the thing is, with management, you have to manage your way out of these sorts of situations. And I think he's almost lost that ability to coach the basics that he has been doing. Like I said there, the team don't have a quality strike force and they really need to work on that in this January transfer window. I think Chris Wilder needs to show that he can actually buy Premier League players. That's probably one thing that he really needs to work on because he's had huge misses with Brewster and with the goalkeeper Ramsdale. I think that's kind of almost put in my mind a question of he's, he's great at managing at the top flight, but is he good at picking the players that he needs in his squad? Maybe they need uh, a head of football at the club. Maybe they need somebody there to kind of go, right, this is the vision. This is the way that Chris Wilder plays. We need this type of player. Maybe that's part of the problem as well as almost the, the acquisition of ability or the flip side could be that he was given a list or he gave a list and they couldn't get the players that he wanted because there were big rumours about Ollie Watkins going to Sheffield United. Instead, they went for Brewster. So maybe it's the board that let him down as well. I don't know the inner workings of the club, but I think the first thing is to get the transfers nailed. They need to make two or three signings, defence, maybe two defenders and a striker to actually get the goals. Because looking at it, they've underperformed by about nine goals this season. That's not good enough. That's really, really poor for a team that have only scored nine goals in total. You know, 50% uh, or they'd, they'd score 100% more goals if they just scored the ones that they should be. My second big point that he needs to work on, and which he can do because he did it last season and he's done it for three, uh, two seasons before that, is just go back to the basics reaffirm your tactics kind of give that mindset to the team it's almost I think a lot of teams do well when they've got a playbook and almost a philosophy to fall back on you see it with Guardiola you see it with Klopp and quite often you know the things go wrong when they they almost tweak too much the the criticism of Pep in Europe has been that he over managers in those sorts of games and I think maybe Wilder has done that as well this season he's kind of got scared he's got a little bit worried that obviously the team are are now on the worst run in Premier League history and he he needs to believe in that philosophy that got him there in the first place so I think the philosophy is great it works fine the foibles are really what boosted them last season they need to recapture that so that those are the two things that I would recommend working on Tony would, would you add anything do you think I, I've, I've made fair points there or, or maybe I've, I've had a bit of an oversight no I can't see anything further Jason I think uh, again that's neatly appraised for me we're talking boom and bust and I'd be amazed if it's anything other than a bust for Sheffield United and um, we speak regularly to uh, Brentford's chairman Cliff Crown as I mentioned in the sportscast version of this podcast and he and I discuss that championship is so tough. And no Norwich are looking like bouncing back. 
but there are so many ex-Premier League teams in that championship. It really is anybody's, and there's no guarantee of instant bounce back. So, again, I don't want to be the harbinger of doom for Sheffield United. They're still in contention. They're not relegated yet, certainly by no means, and definitely not mathematically. But this is the worst start to the Premier League. They were and are rock bottom. Therefore, they were bottom at Christmas. History tells us only three teams in the 27 years of Premier League have actually gone and worked the oracle, survived having been bottom on Christmas Day. The worst start in Premier League history. I mean, it's not boding well. I'm concerned. I think they're a bust. I worry that if they then bust and maybe make drastic changes, perhaps get rid of a wilder, uh, other players filter off, that it could then be a little bit of a slippery slope for the Blades. But let's not be too negative, too much ahead. But I'd love your views. Uh, if you're listening and are a Blade, what have you seen? What have we missed? Uh, what's Chris Wilder not doing? What would you do? Come on. What would you do? How would you save the Blades? Love to hear from you. Tweet at Verum Sport. Email us sport at radioverum.com. Any other sporting boom and bust that come to your mind that you want to get under the microscope that perhaps we have missed? Tweet again at Verum Sport. Email us sport at radioverum.com. But moving down and now to the final one in this week's Boom or Bust conversation. And I'm focusing on what I think could well be a massive booming year for England in all forms of cricket. Really excited for this. England are currently fourth in the test rankings, um, but they've got a busy uh, year ahead. All things COVID uh, touching finger, uh, touching on wood, allowing and could rise up the rankings. I expect them to do just that. They currently top the ICC ODI rankings and, of course, defending champs uh, in that tournament. Remember, again, we've had a great chat with uh, ODI world champion Chris Wokes. Do check out that archive in the podcasting section of the Radio Verum website. They're also top of the T20 rankings. And all things COVID allowing, there's going to be a COVID World Cup, goodness me, a T20 World Cup this COVID-infected year, fingers crossed. That's going to be out in India towards the end of the year. I'm going to talk more about that. England, though, just across all forms of cricket, are looking really, really strong. And just to give you an idea about that, in the test side of things, again, currently ranked fourth, they have Ben Stokes, who's in the top 10 from a batting perspective, comes in at sixth. He's number one in the all-rounder test uh, rankings. No real surprise there. In the bowling uh, test rankings, Stuart Broads, and James Anderson, the two old stages with, uh, well, over 1,000 test wickets between them uh, are in the top 10, both of those. Stuart Broad second, Jimmy Anderson still making a top 10 at seventh. Um, in the um, 
ODI rankings. They have the on-form Johnny Bairstow making the batting top 10, coming in at 10. In the bowling, they have two again in the ODI top 10 rankings. Chris Wokes already mentioned, do check out his podcast that we conducted and his memories of that ODI World Cup win back on home turf in 2019. He's fourth and 10th is um, Jofra Archer. In the T20 side of things, David Milan is number one ranked uh, T20 international batsman. And again, two England bowlers make it into the T20 bowling top 10. Number three is Adil Rashid. Number 10, Chris Jordan. So it just shows the consistency of excellence that is the culture of England cricket, not just in test cricket where we're on the rise and I expect us to rise still further, but in T20, big year for T20 with the World Cup and ODI. So, yeah, it's just been a consistent uh, kind of period of sustained excellence across all forms of cricket for England. Now... Uh, many people will know uh, we were on record. I know Chris Wokes really eloquently about the role of Andrew Strauss. He's now uh, moved over to, um, I think, um, G- Ashley Giles, um, at the kind of head uh, director of cricket level, if you would. Um, but he took over, and England were doing well enough at test level, but were really mediocre at the other forms of the game, the T20 and the 50-50 over the uh, ODIs. And he said, look, we need to make this a focus. We need to make a plan. We need to strategize. And they did that. And they got to World Cup champions, right? And that just, again, a reflection of a process and a culture, a commitment, almost a manifesto to greatness. Now, we've slipped a touch in the test side uh, down to fourth in those rankings. And it is a huge, huge year, jam-packed, up to 17 tests this year. And it gets underway. It's actually already underway in the subcontinent against Sri Lanka. Um, The last time these two uh, countries collided was back in 2018. And England will be hoping to get their test um, year off to a similar start. Last time these two nations collided, England beat Sri Lanka 3-0. Can they do the same? They're going to be without Stokes, number one ranked test all-rounder. They're going to be without Rory Burns, without Oli Hope, without Wokes, whose CV affected at least for the first test, without Moen Ali, and also without Jofra Archer rested. So lots of inexperience, but that list there gives you an idea of the world-class players England will boast throughout the remainder of this test year. I'm really excited for England. Again. The captain in the test arena remains Joe Root. There will be pressure on Root. He got no centuries in the calendar year 2020. And so he will be keen to lead from the front. His test average has dipped, as so many does, since taking over the captaincy. But he remains a class act. And I'm expecting big things from Root this calendar year as he looks to get England back on form and him back to his own world-class batting performances. The test summer, though, builds. Um, again, after the Sri Lanka game, thick and fast in Feb, they stay on the subcontinent to take on India. Um, so England and India are currently just one place above England in the ICC test rankings, coming in at third. So that'll give you a steer as to just how competitive that's going to be. Then in the summer, 
in June. It's still to be confirmed, but it looks likely that there's going to be tests against New Zealand and then five test series, uh, I think, also um, against India before it all culminates with the Mac Daddy of all test cricket. Still, for me, my favourite aspect of the international arena, the Ashes. England looking to reclaim the urn down under. And there's going to be five tests against the Aussies from November to January. Cannot wait for that. It's going to be special. Hopefully, England can build on that. Uh, good starts and good form and climb up the ICC test rankings. I expect them to boom and do just that. And then the T20 World Cup. As I say, that commitment to the shorter form of the game, which saw them become ODI champions just two years ago. They've already claimed the T20 World Cup as well. Winners back in 2010. They were beaten finalists in the last T20 World Cup, losing to West Indies. Can they go one stage better in 2021? It's out in India. And um, they are seriously the T20 team to beat. Currently ranked number one in the world. Again, David Milan, the number one T20 batsman. Watch out for bowlers, Adil Rashid and Chris Jordan. But again, Jason, for me, I'm excited. I'm enthused for a boom year for England with an Ashes ahead of us. Massive test fixtures out of the subcontinent. Plus, of course, a T20 World Cup out of India. It's a whole jam-packed year across all the forms of cricket, and I'm expecting nothing but great things from England across all three forms of international cricket. Yes, I'm hoping that there is uh, a continued trend with this this amazing kind of furore around England. We, we were both so excited, weren't we, Tony, with the, the World Cup win in 2019? And just to remind people to listen to that brilliant podcast that you had with Chris Wokes, uh, as you said, your little kind of line of who needs Stokes when you got Wokes. I thought that was that was uh, brilliant. But yes, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward as well to hopefully seeing the fans back at these England matches because, you know, there's nothing better than seeing a Lord's crowd full to the brim on a lovely sunny afternoon in uh, summertime in England kind of cheering on this. But it looks like, you know, again... Uh, you're kind of moving towards the boom. So thankfully we're ending on, on a high here and the, the, the site guys seems to be around English cricket, that there is a lot of things to be positive about. I mean, just quickly to, to end Tony almost, you know, focusing on this positivity, but what are the stumbling blocks that could be in the way of England kind of getting to that goal? Is it self-imposed or are there other teams going to, come in their way to to stop them reaching that pinnacle once again okay well it's a great question and i'm going to kind of deconstruct it first of all we'll focus on the t20 where england are the team to beat number one ranked in the t20 arena at the moment and again that's come from a commitment 
to the shorter form of the game. They are, as you've mentioned and we've discussed, world champs already at the ODI or 50 over version of the game. The shortest form, I'll be honest with you, Jason, I'll be perfectly frank, and I'm on record as this. I'm a dinosaur. I'm a test match man. Give me a a five-day grind over this bish-bash wallop T20 stuff. But at the end of the day, I respect it also because it has brought entertainment. It has brought a whole new era and a new generation of fans to cricket who will, I'm sure, filter up to test uh, fans too. Um, But honestly, they have been so focused on this from when Andrew Strauss's era and then the transition now into Ashley Giles. And instrumental in that has been the captain, Owen Morgan. And I just think he's assembled such a good squad. They have such faith in one another. They understand their own games. And Jason, you'll appreciate this. Um, I've had lots of conversations with various cricket correspondents locally throughout the cricket season last year. And one thing that came out loud and clear is the culture is this. Whatever happens, don't be afraid to win. If you lose, the T20 is such a game. It's one of the reasons why I'm not such a fan, being, again, dinosauric in temperament, is that there is such little between all the, all the nations. You know, you can wickets tumble. I'm not saying it's a lottery, but it's, it's just... <laughs> It's just it's crazy in its style and it has its uh, place and it has its massive admirers. And I know, listening in, you T20 lovers, don't get me wrong, I get it. I'm, a, I'm on board and I'm rooting for England, of course I am, for the T20 World Cup. But come on, pace me down and tell me it's the future. Tell me that Test Match is over. I'd love to hear from you. Tweet is at Volum Sport. But Jason, that culture of success, you've got to give credit to Andrew Strauss for kicking it in. And Owen Morgan, as the captain, has cemented it. But there are so many stars, like I say, number one batter in T20 in the world, David Milan. And again, that's not just a, uh, a spark stat or a spark fact. These are, these are, these are fluid. They happen, they're, mar- they're marked over uh, every, every game. But as it stands again, there's a very good reason why England, number one T20 ranked team in the world, number one ODI team in planet Earth. And David Milan is the number one batsman. But again, it takes two uh, forms in any form you got to bat well you got to field well of course you do and you need to bowl well and two bowlers in Adele Rashid and Chris Jordan also in that T20 uh, top 10 rankings it just goes to show you the qualities that England possess and the trust they've got in Owen Morgan they will be favourites, Jason, going in to the uh, T20 World Cup which again is in India in October and November back end of the year but there are so many good teams. And as I've mentioned, the very nature of T20 is that on any given day, upsets happen and weird results occur. So it's not a formality. But unlike often times we've discussed in football, maybe it's the pressure adversely affects England. This England culture for such a long time now has been so well embedded that there is no fear. It's we play our game, we attack, and if we lose because the other team is better than us, then we'll move on. And I just think it's so refreshing. And again, Jason, let's not be let's not make any bones about it. Whilst that sounds all lovely, right? It hasn't happened by magic. It's taken an awful lot of learning, lots of changes, lots of players that couldn't quite 
live up to the freedoms that that philosophy provides, um, a lot of soul searching has occurred for England to reach where they are. And quite rightly, will go in to the uh, T20 World Cup in India back end of this year as favourites. And again, for me, they deserve that. I make them favourites. But T20 is what it is. Let's see if they can go one better than when they were beaten finalists in the last T20 World Cup. Now, coming to the test side, I wouldn't say, Jason, that they've taken their eye off the test ball. There's been lots of good results, but we are needing to reclaim the ashes for the first time in a little while. And in terms of the test arena, again, Ben Stokes is absolutely critical. Fourth ranked batsman in his own right. Number one ranked bowler. Keeping him fit will be absolutely pivotal for all England do. And as I've already explained earlier in this very discussion, he's rested. And I think that's not a bad decision at all for the bigger picture thinking for this Sri Lanka series. Joe Root's got to step up. Uh, I'm not one of those circling or saying that he's going to have to, you know, face the chop or anything like that. But no centuries for Joe Root in the coming year 2020 means that he will need to lead from the front and pick up the bat literally and kind of get that down. And he'd be keen to get that century uh, really rapidly, ideally in this first test series underway already as it is against Sri Lanka. That's going to be something that's going to be closely monitored. And again, Jason, to answer your brilliant question from a test match perspective, because the biggest picture test match wise, uh, whilst all these uh, tests against Sri Lanka, again, big series thereafter in Fairbairn, India, uh, summer series as well. It's all excited. Of course it is. But it's building, it's building. It just can barely wait for the ashes. We did a, a show last time out, didn't we, where we were looking at the highlights of the sporting calendar. And I was so close, so close to putting the ashes in there. I really love it. I know you've got ashes memories. I know you're excited for it too. Love to hear from you accordingly. Tweet us at Random Sport, email sport at radiovrandom.com. All your thoughts, all your glorious ashes memories. Can we reclaim the urn? We'll find out in the end of this year. Early goings of 2022. But something that's going to have to be considered, Jason, in order to achieve that goal, we talk about management. We talk about balance. Now, test cricket is a, a real key to success. is consistency and consistency in selection. Big changes forced and chosen for Sri Lanka. So this inexperienced England team will look to step up to the plate. But... In terms of managing, game managing, that twin attack that has served England well for over 15 years, Messrs Anderson and Stuart Broad. Jimmy Anderson with 600 wickets, the highest wicket-taking bowler from a fast bowling perspective. He's only 19 of becoming third all-time, hunting down the great Indian spinner in Anil Kumble. And Stuart Broad with 514 wickets. And although over 30, 34 himself, has age on his side, could perhaps 
be, uh, surpass Jimmy Anderson himself one day to become England's all-time leading wicket-taker. And I know, whether he may not admit it in person, I'm sure that motivates him. And a motivated broad is phenomenal. You saw him roar back when he was rested against West Indies. And again, has roared his way to currently being second-ranked in the test bowling uh, rankings by the ICC. Jimmy Anderson is seventh. Now, over a thousand test wickets between them, Jason. They have been pillars of England test successes for, like I say, 15 odd years. And their longevity is a credit to them and their fitness and their commitment and their skill. But I don't think over a course of a gruelling test series year, whether we're looking at over 17 fixtures, inclusive of the Ashes, that they can go all out, paired up for all 17 of those. So the challenge is how England manage their time, their energy and their game allowance, given their competitive nature, given that even now, aware as they are of father time, that in their heads, they still want to be playing each and every test match. That's their mentality. It's why they are so good. It does need to be managed. That's a big uh, question and something that we'll need to be closely monitored. I'll be monitoring it closely, but I'm excited to see how England look after these two world, world-class bowlers, but nevertheless expect nothing but big things from that beautiful uh, uh, pace attack that is Anderson and Broad. Yeah, and it makes for an exciting 2021 indeed, Tony. Uh, the, the thing that you've described there, which is so, so important for sport, is just that game management, especially with kind of not veterans. I don't want to call them that, but senior. It's a fair like, word, Jason. Honestly, it's a fair word. Uh, I think Addison, 36, uh, Broad, 34. Uh, both been playing, at, playing their trade at the top level at international cricket for well over 15 years. Again, veteran, I think, is more than fair. I don't think they would take that anything other than a statement of a fact. And I think they'd wear that with a badge of pride, knowing them. Yeah. Well, then, uh, with veterans, with these elite kind of players, it's the same with somebody like Cristiano Ronaldo, Messi, uh, Usain Bolt when he was still sprinting. You have to be selective. And it, it's just that honest ability. But there's also that that voice in their head that will go, I want to be involved there. And it, it's kind of that ability of the team, the manager, those around them to almost speak to them and go, sit this one out. Is it important to do this one? So getting that fine balance. And as you said, they're keeping those veterans fit in the squad will be so, so important. And I just hope it all works together because a lot of those things are slightly manageable, but it's also down to luck. And it, and it seems like England are kind of doing the right things when they get out there, but it's that off the pitch or, or even sometimes it is when, when you're on the, the, the cricket ground itself, you can pick up these kind of injuries, but it's, those are more down to unluckiness. Some of it is down to management, but it's just that little tweak. The day might be slightly too cold. Your muscles might not be warmed up enough. And then you're out for two or three weeks, maybe a month. And then you, you can't partake in the whole tournament. You know, that that's your tournament done. Maybe one of your last tournaments ever. So that's the sad thing about at that level. Whereas a younger player might be able to, to run it off, work it out. So it's like anything with age, age catches up to you, unfortunately. And when you're older, these things get more serious. So I'm just hoping that 
England continued their fine abilities, their, their high quality play, but also that luck is on their side, that they can continue to field their best team as much as possible because that's what you want and that's what wins you trophies. And they do have that winning ability as well. Winners win, as you say, so many times, Tony. And they've won it so many times. You need them out there to kind of lead in those situations. So realistically, it seems like it could be a positive year for England. Do you, Just maybe a final question here. If they don't win anything at all, would you class that as a failure this year? Given the culture, yes, I would. And I think given that culture of success, so will they. Um, but as I say, from a T20 perspective, um, they have such faith and trust in Owen Morgan. Um, they made a very brave decision um, when they, you know, remember again, they won that last ODI World Cup uh, on home turf in such epic style. Now, Strauss and team made a big decision because they crushed and burned in the previous uh, ODI World Cup before that, which is when this soul-searching process began. This instilling of a culture of new success and commitment to it really got underway. Now, at that moment, it would have been easy for them to sacrifice uh, Owen Morgan, but they didn't. They kept the faith. And again, I would signpost everybody towards that Chris Wokes uh, interview podcast because he's, he lived it. He played in it. He was man of the match in the semi-final in the o, uh, ODI World Cup against um, Australia before winning against New Zealand. And he speaks with such reverence about Owen Morgan. So in a T20 perspective, you know, the World Cup's in India. India are so good themselves in T20. Uh, again, it's such a, a massive part of their sporting culture. Australia currently ranked second in the T20 World Cup. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a crapshoot almost, the, uh, the, the, the T20 side of things. It really is. And that's why, I mean, fair play to England through it all, have to have shown the consistency to be ranked number one in the world, going in rightly as favourites. But it wouldn't shock me if they don't win it in T20 because there, it's, there is so little. Such, it's not even fine margins. It's, it's such a crazy game. Uh, but, yeah, I don't think they will be rocking the boat unduly if they don't claim the T20 World Cup. But, of course... They know there's a reason why they're going as favourites. They embrace that. They love it. And anything other than victory will be deemed internally a, 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 a failure. And they will not be shy away from openly stating that. So we'll see. We'll see if they can indeed go one stage better than 2016 where they were beaten finalists. I suspect they really, really, really can. In terms of test cricket, Jason, again, they're still ranked fourth in the world but they are looking to reclaim the ashes and they have dipped a touch because again, Strauss identified the need to really make a focus on the short form of cricket, both ODI and T20 in order to truly be a force. And again, within four years from, uh, from bust to boom and shows us all what's possible. I think a similar type focus needs to be reapplied to the test side. And I think we can see that creeping in. I'm very excited to see how this very inexperienced England team do in Sri Lanka. 
I'm very excited to watch how Zach Crawley develops. An amazing 267 uh, against Pakistan in his last test knock. Watch out for Dom Sibley too. Also looking like they have a makings of a very strong opening partnership. Bairstow was under pressure. Once again, illustrating how one can go from lowly and outsider to a hero has got himself back into um, the top 10 in the batting ratings. Just a class act. Watch out for him to do good things too. Look, Jason, again, like I mentioned, the, the test side currently only ranked fourth. But with the ashes firmly in mind, I'm convinced this England side are on the boom across all forms. And I simply can't wait for the rest of 2021 to unfold and for England to do just that. Right here, right now, I want to hear from you. I know you've got your views, not just on England cricket and the culture of success, but also on other boom and bust that we maybe have not had time to consider. Tweet us at Verilum Sports. You can call us on, um, well, don't call, I'm afraid. That's a, a relic of studio time. I'm maybe just uh, projecting, trying to manifest the future where we'll be back in studio. You can, though, email us, sports at radioverilum.com. Either way, do get involved. Love to hear your views. Talking uh, bust. It's been a bust year for the uh, dynasty that is the New England Patriots. The first time they fail to make the super uh, the playoff run in over 15 years. I'm looking forward to chatting soon to Andy Dickens from the Hearts Cheaters for more playoff reviews. There's going to be loads more podcasts for you to feast upon. Make sure you're feasting on us uh, for another booming sportscast every Saturday on 92.6 FM. And always keep involved. Your show every bit as much as it is ours. So tweet us at Random Sport, email sports at radiofrelum.com and keep engaged. But for now, I want to send a big, big thank you to my colleague, the legend that is the machine, Jason McKenna. I want to thank you very much indeed for listening. And I want to wish you, wherever you are, all the very best. Keep well, keep safe, and God bless. Take care. <laughs>